Thanks for listening to this message from The Block KC. The Block KC exists to help young adults build their lives on what counts. We believe that is Jesus and what God has revealed in His Word. We'd love to see you next Thursday, 7 p.m. at Lenexa Baptist Church. Now, let's listen to this week's message. Well, Kansas City, how we doing? Hey, tonight, like Grant so artfully illustrated, we're going to be starting our new series called Sin. Uh, it is tragic that our house does not have any ketchup in it. I live with Grant. He's one of my roommates. We did have six bottles of ranch. That's a true statement. Uh, we got rid of all of it, though. Don't worry. We're not eating any expired food. Um, I'm excited to be starting this series with you all. We're going to be taking, taking a look at the common deadly sins of young adults. Sin in the Bible is defined as missing the mark or going off the correct path that God has designed for our lives. And so as we start this series, I want to take a moment uh, to set up why this is so vital that we examine sin while we look at what it means to follow Jesus. Our goal here at LBC and at Journey Bible Church is that people would know and follow the good news of Jesus. That is why the church exists, to worship and glorify Christ. And so the block being a ministry of those churches, we want people to know about Jesus. But on the surface then, it can kind of seem like it's a little overly negative to focus several weeks of our year here at the block talking about sin. It can kind of seem like, man, that's not very comfortable to think about. That's not uh, very life-giving on the surface or life-building, but there are a few key reasons why we need to talk about this. Number one, sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. The Bible says that sin when it is full-grown leads to death, and the Bible says that God is a perfect God who created every single one of us with a perfect and life-giving plan in mind, but sin causes us to miss that mark, and that leads to brokenness, and that leads to pain, and that leads to suffering. And this has consequences. And because God is a just God, anytime we introduce pain or sin or brokenness into the world, there has to be a payment for that sin. And the Bible refers to this as eternal death. It's not easy to talk about, but the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so the end destination is hell where we're cut off from God. And I don't want the sin series to be all doom and gloom because there is good news. And the good news is that there's a solution. Sin has a solution that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. So this series is not about cleaning our lives up. It's not about making people feel bad about themselves. But it's about understanding the gift that God has given us through the death of his son on the cross. And understanding how great God's love for us is. Reason number one, sin is deadly. But reason number two, sin is waging war. If you are a follower of Christ, sin is waging war against you. The Bible says that even though we're made right with God, there's still sin. And you can't lose your salvation because you didn't do anything to earn it. But allowing sin to continue on in your life unchecked, it will eat away at your confidence before God. It will eat away at your connection with God. And it will eat away at your concern and capacity for God's mission. 
And so with the, this series, our goal is that if you don't yet believe in Jesus, that you would see that your sin earns you death, but that there is life in Jesus. I pray that every single person in here who is not yet a follower of Jesus would understand the gift that is available to you in Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, our hope is that you would see that you don't have to live in sin anymore. That God has delivered you from the power of sin and that by focusing on God's goodness and by focusing on Jesus, you would wage war against the sin in your life. So that's the goal of this series and we wanted to take a moment and set it up because it's important that we examine what is sin before we start talking about the specific deadly sins to young adults that we're going to be talking about. Sound good? All right. Well, tonight specifically, we're going to be talking about idolatry or the worship of idols. And we're going to be defining more of that as we move through the passage. But I want to give you guys a mental illustration that will set up the idea of idolatry and why it's so dangerous. Imagine with me the solar system. There it is, right there. Boom. I feel like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, you got the sun, the planets, the asteroid belt, the Kuiper belt. Uh, I think that that's the one that goes around Pluto. Very important belt to wear in the solar system. Uh, what keeps the solar system together is gravity, right? We all know this. Specifically, the sun's gravity is what keeps everything united. But let's say, theoretically, the planets could all get together and decide, what do we put in the middle of the solar system? Maybe they don't like revolving around the sun. Maybe they think it's a little bright, or it's a little too harsh, or it starts to, uh, you know, just get too hot. And so the planets get together, and they think, man, we are going to replace the sun in the center of the solar system so that we can revolve around what we want to revolve around. And so maybe they put Jupiter in there and they see if Jupiter will give it a shot. Or maybe they put Venus or an asteroid or a comet. What happens if the planets are able to do this and replace the sun? Everything begins to fall apart. Everything grows cold and drifts off into space. Everything breaks if the sun is not at the center of the solar system because it lost the gravity of the sun. And now that can never happen in our solar system. But this very thing happens in the lives of young professionals every single day. This exact same thing. Because God is the only being powerful enough to live at the center of our solar systems. At the center of our lives. God is the only being who's big enough and loving enough to fill that need in our life. But a lot of times we take other parts of life and we put them in the spot of God and we say to them, You're my reason for living. You're the reason why I get up in the morning. And the result is that we end up worshiping or building our lives around a cheap substitute for a loving and powerful God. And we make idols. What happens then? Everything begins to fall apart. And if you're in the room tonight and you feel like your life is going to pieces, or you feel like everything is growing cold or apathetic, or you feel like you don't have a purpose for going on, or that your purpose is cheap or small, I'm going to challenge you tonight that you might have an idolatry problem. But there's good news, because sin has a solution, and we're going to talk about that. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we trust you with this series. God, uh, we know that sin is not easy to talk about, God. And I pray that, uh, God, would we understand your love for us, God, but would we also understand in light of your holiness and who you are, God, the gravity of sin. And God, specifically tonight, God, would you reveal to us through your spirit and through your word, God, that idolatry is a big deal to you. 
And God, that while it's something that we might not recognize on the surface, God, would you begin to bring to mind the areas that you want us to be conformed into the image of your son as we do this. So God, help us to have a mind that understands the scriptures. God, give me the words to speak. God, don't let them be my words, but let them just be your words. And I pray, God, that every man and woman in here, God, would be a a person who would understand, God, the dangers of idolatry, and they would learn to flee from idolatry and worship you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so tonight we're going to be in Exodus 32, 1 through 14. Uh, For those of you who are new to the Bible, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, so you don't have to go very far. If you don't have a Bible, stop by the Connect Center after this. We would love to get you one to equip you with a Bible. And the book of Exodus is a book about God rescuing his people, the nation of Israel. And he's rescuing them from a 400-year period of slavery in Egypt. And he's going to use a man named Moses to, to be raised up and to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and give them a new life and a new nation under God's rule and God's care. And there's been all kinds of miracles that the Israelites have seen. God parted the Red Sea and they walked through on dry ground to escape the Egyptian army. There was bread that rained down from heaven when the Israelites got hungry in the desert. And now he's led them to Mount Sinai, which is a mountain in the Arabian Peninsula. And God is giving Moses his commandments for a new nation on top of the mountain. And Moses and his assistant Joshua, they've been gone for 40 days. And that is where we're going to pick up in Exodus 32, verse 1. Read with me. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. What happens here? The people get impatient. The people don't like that Moses has been gone for so long. It's been 40 days. It's only been 40 days since Moses has been up there, and they're already getting restless. So they go, and they find the priest, Aaron, who's actually Moses' brother, and they say, hey, get up, man. Go make us some gods that we can follow. Go make us something that we can worship. Moses, he's probably dead. We don't know what he's doing. Uh, We need some idols. We need a, a God that can go before us and lead us, that we can see and protect us from all the unknowns ahead. And right there, off the bat, we see that the Israelites have a desire for idolatry. Right off the bat. And this leads to the question, what is idolatry? The Bible doesn't give us a exact definition, but the prophet Isaiah gives us a pretty clear picture. In Isaiah 44, he talks about the parable of a man who goes and he cuts down a large tree and he uses some of it to warm himself around a fire and he uses some of it to cook himself food and the rest, we're going to see what he does with it in Isaiah 44, 17. God says this about him. And the rest of it, he makes into a God his idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. So what is idolatry? Idolatry is giving glory to anything other than God for salvation or solutions for any of life's problems. Idolatry is giving glory to anything other than God for salvation or solutions for any of life's problems. It's this idea that God should be praised, but in addition to other things in my life. That there are other things in my life that fill the need of God or the role of God. And God doesn't need to be necessarily thanked or worshipped for what he does. 
but we can worship and thank other things. And now, I'm not saying that we don't trust like people or thank people for helping us. Uh, good things as blessings. But we know that these come from God and they're tools that God uses, not idols to be worshipped instead of God. There's a distinction there. And the Israelites in the desert, they want something to worship and they want something to give credit to. They want a God that they can go to for guidance and confidence. And so they ask Aaron the priest, they say, we want you to make this for us. And so what does Aaron do? In verse 2 of Exodus 32, Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And you guys might be thinking right now, uh, Nick, I'm pretty sure you said that the Israelites just came out of slavery. How do they have so much gold? Like, they did not have anything, and now they have enough gold to make a whole golden calf? God had actually given the Israelites so much favor and warmth from the Egyptian people that as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, he told the Israelites, go ask your Egyptian neighbors for all of their jewelry and clothes. And the Egyptians just gave it to them. They gave them so much gold and jewelry and clothing It says that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. So we're talking large quantities, large amounts of wealth had been taken from Egypt. And God did this to provide for his people. God did this to set them up for the future so that they could have currency, so that they could have clothing, so that they could buy and sell and trade and carry on life and ultimately to worship God with, as we would see later in Exodus. But they took God's gifts and they turned them into an idol. They exchanged the goodness of God for a cheap substitute. Verse 4, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We see here four examples of idolatry. This is what idolatry looks like. It looks like worshiping what we work to create. It looks like attributing God's glory to something else. It looks like distorting God's character to fit in with other gods. And it looks like celebrating false gods with further sin. The Israelites, they work to create this calf. They go through the process of melting down the gold and and shaping it. And Aaron himself uses a graving tool to form it. And they work to worship something that they created. Aaron says that this calf is the gods who delivered them. They attribute God's glory and God's deeds to something else. And then they merge the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, with this idol. And they say, tomorrow's a feast to the Lord while worshiping the golden calf. And then finally, they celebrate the idol by overeating, uh, by getting drunk. And the passage is, uh, says this in not a very clear way, but most likely a lot of sexual sin was involved when it says that they celebrated this God. And we look at this and we think, what are they doing? Why would they do this? And then you begin to zoom out and you look at the context of the passage and the picture gets even more grim. 
Where are they camped right now? At the mountain of God. What are they waiting on? God's word to them. The tragic aspect of all this is that in the sight of all the people, they can look up at the mountain, and the Bible says that there is fire and smoke that is surrounding the top of the mountain that's hiding the glory of God. It's a clear example of the presence of God, and it's right there on the top of the mountain. And in the sight of this amazing Image, can you imagine looking up at a mountain and seeing all-consuming fire swirling around the top of it and, and there's loud thunder and lightning and smoke and you know that God is there and we know that they know that God is there because he shows himself to them a couple chapters earlier and they see that and they make an idol of gold and they say, these are your gods. Do you want to know what God's first words to them were when they got to this mountain? Check this out. Exodus 20 tells us, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who delivered you from the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, nor any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, nor in the earth beneath, and that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The first thing God says is, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he gives them this, this guidelines and these commands that they can live by. And do you know what the people said to God in response? These were their words to God. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They made a covenant to God to follow him. And they committed to following him, and they got to see his glory. It says that under the feet of God, there was a pavement of clear, precious jewels, and they beheld God, God himself, the creator of the universe, who said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But then 40 days later, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Almost word for word. They take all the miracles of God's rescue from slavery and they say, this pile of gold that God gave you, this pile of gold actually saved us. Let's bow down to it instead. Let's be faithful to this idol instead of faithful to the faithful God who loves us. And we read this story, right, and it's confusing. It's heartbreaking. And you look at this God who loved the Israelites so much, and he rescued them, and he did miraculous things, and they commit to following him and him alone, and then God wants them to be his people, and he wants to be their God, and he loves them. And just 40 days later, they turn against him. 40 days. It's not that long. And it's super easy to look at the Israelites and think, man, how could you be so stupid? Right? Like you can see God working. You can see God's glory. You experience God rescuing you. God has given you so much and you betrayed him. But we have to ask ourselves, what about us? What about me? Because it's really easy to look at these things and judge from the sidelines. 
Because hindsight is always 2020, and if we're not careful, we can get into the spectator mindset where we kind of think we can do better. We're like, oh yeah, like no, I would never do that. That's, that's not something that I would do. Men, you know what I'm talking about. You see this all the time. You see people do something, and you're like, I could definitely do that better. Like, I just, I could do it so much better. Even in Grant's story, you're like, I know what I would have done different. <laughs> but what happens if we get off the sidelines and put ourselves in the situation? What happens if we put ourselves against the test of God's word? See, these things in the Old Testament, they're examples for us. The letter in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is speaking to a church of Corinth, which is a group of non-Jewish believers, and they were in a city full of idolatry. And he's, com- he's challenging them and encouraging them, live in a manner worthy of God who saved you. And he's actually going to talk about this group of Israelites from Exodus 32. He says that this group of Israelites, they had some spiritual experiences with God. And they had some kind of religion or belief in God. And maybe even some of them had real, genuine faith in Christ. But listen to how God speaks about them in his word. This group of Israelites. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 7, the verses will be up on the screen. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's the exact same verse as Exodus 32, 6. Paul is directly quoting it, and he's saying, that's an example for us. That is an example of how we should not live. Don't desire idolatry. Don't worship idols. And then he says we must not indulge in sexual immorality like they did in that day. And we're going to cover that in this series. And then he says don't put God to the test in pride and don't envy and covet. And we're going to talk about those things in this series. But then Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 14. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Listen to this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved Flee from idolatry. Run away. Flee from idolatry. We read this story in Exodus 32, and we realize, man, we need to examine ourselves, right? Like, I need, if I think that I'm standing strong, I need to take heed. I need to pay attention to this story. I need to pay attention to the example of these Israelites. And we learn that we're not beyond making idols. Follower of Christ or not, we are not beyond idolatry. All temptations, which is just the idea or the first moment of desire to do sin, it's common to all man. It's not unique, which I think should be of some encouragement because we realize, man, if I'm feeling tempted all the time, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person who deals with this temptation. And then it says that God is faithful and he's going to help us flee from idolatry. He's going to help us resist temptation. So we don't need to be afraid of temptation, but we do need to be aware And we need to run away from giving glory to anything else besides God. And we need to run far away from trusting anything else. And we need to gear up to fight. This is waging war against our souls. And so we need to look at this example, figure out what does idolatry look like? How do we resist temptation and flee from sin? And so to do this, we need to examine some common idols or temptations to idolatry for young professionals. 
Uh, idols are really anything that we can put in the place of God in our solar system, in the place of the sun, if you think back to that. Anything that we can build our lives around. It might be the idol of self or pride or lust or overconsumption or greed. Those are all bad things. Every single one of those is a bad thing. But, like we saw with Aaron and the golden calf, we can take God's gifts and we can turn those into idols. Right? Good things that God intended us to be thankful for caused us to worship and praise him. We can put those things at the center of our lives and we can worship them instead. Things like achievement at work or relationship status or money or health or body image or friendships or social life or family, sports, entertainment. There's so many different things that we can idolize in our life. And a good test, if you're wondering, what are some of the potential idols in my life? It's just this this really easy fill in the blank here. My life would be better if blank. I need blank to solve my problem right now. I need blank to save me from this hurt or pain. Blank is the reason I get up in the morning. Blank guides my reason for living. My life would be better if blank. If that blank is anything other than the one true God of the Bible, we have an idol problem. And the first step to the solution is just learning we've got a problem. It's just admitting that we have a problem. And so what do we do? We worship what we work to create. We attribute God's glory to something else. We distort God's character to fit with other gods. And we celebrate false gods with further sin. Let's unpack what this looks like for young adults. If you are working towards something in your life right now, you can think of it. Okay, this is kind of my goal. I'm working towards this. I would like to, by the end of this year, have this. And you think that that will solve the problems of your life. If you think that that will deliver you, you already have faith in an idol. You're just working to create it right now. If we look at our lives and the blessings that God gives us and we came to think, man, my intelligence is what got me here. Oh, no, 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 man, my, my hard work or my job or my good looks or, or this person or, or this thing that I have, that is what's been good to me. That's why I'm at where I'm at in life. That's why I have the things that I'm proud of. And we're not thankful to God. We are attributing God's glory to something else. If we twist God's word to fit what we want it to say so that we can live how we want to live and feel good about ourselves, we're distorting God's character in pursuit of idols. Because we're saying, God, you've got to conform to my image. You've got to do what I want. I want you to be a God of my own making instead of being the God that you are. And, and every single time, every single time we end up celebrating an idol in our lives, it only leads to further sin. It really does. Sin only leads to sin. Because if we're going to idolize a relationship in our life, that's going to lead to sexual brokenness. That's going to lead to emotional brokenness. Because you're making an idol out of something that was never meant to be God. And if we idolize friendships, it leads to people pleasing. Or it leads to gossip or, or drunkenness. Because you just want to make everyone happy so you do what they do. And if we make an idol out of reputation, it it leads to pride or it leads to anger or someone attacks our reputation or it leads to bitterness or it leads to putting other people down because we got to make ourselves feel good because that's our God. That's what we live for. 
And we have to ask the question, right? If we have these idols, if we admit that we have the problem, and we know that we do these things, why do we turn to these things as idols? Like, why am I even doing this in the first place? When we spell it out like this, it seems crazy, but, but in the day-to-day, it can be a lot harder to you know, figure out, okay, is it, am I dealing with idolatry here in my life? Why did the Israelites turn to idols? Why did they do it? We saw back in Exodus 32, they didn't like God's timing. They had needs that they felt were unmet, and they were unhappy with which the speed that God was moving at. And a lot of times, that's the same for us. My life would be better if blank, and God doesn't really seem to be moving as fast as I'd like him to. And I've got stress, and I uh, kind of feel weighed down at work. And so my life would be better if I could just scroll on my phone and zone out for a while. I feel alone and unloved, so my life would be better if I was married. Or my life would be better if I was in a relationship. Or my life would be better if I could just have sex whenever I wanted to. I have this need and I feel like I'm missing out and so I need friends. I don't feel self-value so I need to improve my reputation or my body image. I feel afraid of the future so I need more money. I don't feel validated so I need to achieve or I need my team to achieve or I need everyone around me to just see me as a good person. And God is not moving as quickly as I want him to. These are all things that we can think, even subconsciously, under the surface in our lives. And we have these needs and these gaps in our lives that need to be filled, just like the Israelites, right? Like the Israelites are scared. They are in a new country, they're in a new land, they're in a new situation, and they need help. So it makes sense that they might be afraid and they might want something to lead them. But what doesn't make sense is that they make a golden calf. Because who brought them out of the land of Egypt? God. Who promised to look out for them? God. Who promises to meet all of our needs? God. The tragic thing about this, and the more that I study this, the more I see it in my own life, is that all of these needs, God promises to meet them. Every single one of them. If you're stressed, God says to cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you in prayer. If you feel like you're missing out, then he says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full in service to him. If, if you don't feel like you have self-worth, he says you were so worth it that I sent my son to die on the cross for your sins so that you could have a relationship with him. If he says that you feel like you need to achieve, God tells us he's already won the victory. If you feel like you're alone and that nobody cares, God says he's never going to leave you or forsake you. Everything that we try to go to is a cheap imitation of the God who has already loved us and promised us these things. And so how do we flee from idolatry? How do we fight if we know, okay, I've got this problem. What do I need to do? The first thing is you just repent. You tell God, God, I need help. It says that God is faithful. He is going to be the one to deliver us from this. In 1 Corinthians 10, we see also that you need to be on guard. We have to be aware. We have to be aware that we're probably going to be tempted in this area. We have to be aware that our hearts are often going to make idols. And so when you're feeling impatient or you have a need in your life, that should give you a flag in your mind that you're thinking, okay, I'm in dangerous area of wanting to make an idol right now. 
If I'm unhappy about how something is, is happening or I'm unhappy or I feel like I've got this, this thing that I need deliverance or, or saving from, we know, okay, I'm in the territory of wanting to trust something other than God. A lot of times this just looks like refocusing our hearts on God. <laughs> just saying, God, I just need you to help me out in this situation. God, I need you to save me. God, you're a good God. You love me. And we just focus our worship and our life back on God and we trust him to meet our needs and desires. And he says he's going to give us a way out of temptation. And what do we do when we want a way out of temptation? It's not, okay, I just got to white knuckle it and I just got to hold on as tight as I can. It's God, no, I need you to come save me. God, I want to focus on you and I want to be reminded of your goodness and your love towards me. And it allows us to flee that temptation. And, and he says to flee, which means if there's something in my life that's causing me to commit idolatry, I need to get away from that. If there's something that I'm idolizing, I need to say, God, I either need you to radically change this area of my life or I need to get as far away from this thing as I can. If it's more time on my phone because I think my phone will make me feel better, I need to set some boundaries. If it's food, then I need to set some, some boundaries so I don't overeat. If it's popularity, then I need to set some boundaries about who I let in my life. If it's money, then I need to set some boundaries of being generous. And we focus on God in these things, and we flee from idolatry. And we ask God, transform my mind. God, please change me. Replace that thing with you so I worship and I trust you. A helpful illustration for me uh, in this and something that I have commonly wrestled with with idolatry is just watching sports. Uh, it's really, it seems lame to say that, I know. Uh, sports are great. I want to be clear on that. Uh, there are a lot of athletic metaphors in the Bible. It's a good thing. Sports are a good thing. I want to say that now. But I've noticed a lot of times that my mood or my outlook on life can be determined more by how the Chiefs or the Jayhawks or the Wildcats are doing uh, you'll notice the specific sports I chose for each of those. You know who you are. Um, I know that if I'm waiting all day to check scores or, or if my mood is bad after the Chiefs lose, I know something's going on. I know I've got a problem. And one of my best friends and I, we, we're both huge Chiefs fans, and there have been times where he and I have realized, man, we probably need to not watch a couple games we need to probably take a couple weeks off of buying this because I'm letting this dictate my mood far too often. And I begin to think subconsciously, my life would be better if the Chiefs won. Which, again, it kind of sounds dumb, right? It sounds silly to get caught up in idolatry over a game of grown men playing a sport. But a, a famous Christian theologian, his name's John Calvin, he said this, our nature is a perpetual factory of idols. It may sound silly and it may seem kind of confusing on the surface, but we look at the picture of the Israelites and we think, man, I would never worship a golden calf. Just like they might look at us if they were here today and think, man, I would never worship my phone. Man, I would never worship my body image. Man, I would never worship money. And we realize that even the smallest, simplest thing can become an idol if we allow it to hold too important of a place in our lives. And that means that if our hearts are prone to idolatry, we need to find something to fill our hearts with constantly. Right? We need something to fill us up instead of idols, and that's God. 
That is, is God, and God is the only one who can do this. And the reason why it's so beneficial, uh, we, we talk about the fact that the block is a ministry of two churches. That's because the block is not a church. And so we want you guys to come worship on Sunday with us. If you don't have a church home, either here at LBC or over at Journey. And it's important to do this because when you come and you worship with God's people, your heart gets filled back up of the glory of God. And you begin to see how good God is. And you begin to realize, man, everyone here is singing and praising and studying God's word. God is a good God. And you begin to be full of God. It's it's important that we study God's word because it says that we can hide it in our heart and we can treasure these things up in our heart. And so we want to fill up our hearts with God's word. Prayer is so important because it says that it aligns our hearts with God. It aligns our heart to be more similar to God. What's in your heart? Is it full of God or are you leaving room for idolatry? Because idolatry is only going to lead to further disconnect from God and further sin. Idolatry is a very, very serious sin in the eyes of God, and it should be in our eyes too. We actually get a picture of how God sees this idol worship, and it's important that we see this because we need to understand the gravity of what it means to flee from idolatry. Why would Paul use such strong language to us? We continue on in Exodus 32. Verses 7 and 8, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Make no mistake, God sees our idolatry, even if it's just in our hearts or if we do it in private. God still sees it. In verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God looks at the Israelites, and he sees them sacrificing to idols, and he calls them a stiff-necked people, which means that they are resistant to submit themselves to following God's leadership. They want to do their own thing. They want their independence They want it their own way, which is so interesting because what's something that we highly value here in our country? Independence. We think, man, I I, kind of want to be dependent on myself. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I I don't need anyone's help. I don't need someone to tell me how to live. And a lot of times in America, if we're not careful, we take this amazing gift of freedom that God has given us and we turn it into an idol. And we end up being stiff-necked, just like the Israelites. I want to do what I want, and I don't want God to interfere. I want him to make me feel good. I want to go to church on Sunday, and I don't want anything else. And we create a God of our own making. And God gets angry at the Israelites. He's brokenhearted over their sin. And they don't really have a ground to stand on, right? Like, they have been unfaithless. They committed. They said, God, we're going to follow you. God, we are going to commit ourselves to following your words. And the very first thing that God told them, they break within 40 days. And what's more, they're going to cause the other nations around them to mock God. These nations that they were designed to go in and either replace or to be a blessing to all the surrounding nations, 
the very people that God has chosen are going to drag them into further idolatry. Idolatry is worse than we even know. In those days, it led to things like sexual immorality. Idolatry was very similar with child sacrifice, with violence. It was a terrible, terrible thing. And while we may not do those today, today we can be tempted to sacrifice our relationships for our idols. Moms and dads all over the country are tempted to sacrifice their relationship with their kids for money, for comfort. Husbands are sacrificing relationships with their wives. Wives are sacrificing relationships with their husbands. Friends are sacrificing their relationships with each other. There is sacrifice going on. We just might not see it the same. It's just changed. And from a human perspective, right, like we can look at this and we can kind of think, man, God, you kind of seem like you're overreacting. Like, God, you, you're getting really angry and that kind, of, that kind of makes me uncomfortable. And surely idolatry, surely it's not that bad, right? It's not this bad that you need to be so angry to wipe these Israelites off the face of the earth. Why does God get to demand praise? Think with me back to the solar system analogy. Think back with me there. If the sun was a person, where is the most loving place for the sun to be? If the sun is a person, what's the best spot in the solar system for the sun to be? Right where it's at. Right in the center. In the center of the solar system, because if the planets replace it with something else, what happens? The solar system grows cold, it dies, and it falls apart. God needs to be at the center of our lives in worship. God is the only big enough being to fill that need in our life. Otherwise, it only leads us to further sin and only leads us to further brokenness in our relationships with other people and in the way that we see ourselves and in the way that we see God. And God is being loving for being just because he knows that these people are going to drag other people down with them. He knows that they're going to invite them into further idolatry and they're not only going to wreck their own solar system, but they're going to wreck the entire universe around them by trying to replace God. And so when we see a God who describes himself, God describes himself as being slow to anger and abounding in patience, exceedingly patient. When he's this angry, we should know idolatry is evil. We should see this for as big a deal as it is. And so what do we do about this idolatry issue? How do we solve it? Look with me at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses steps in between God and the Israelite people. And look what it says. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I think sometimes we can look at the anger of God and we kind of think, man, I, I don't like that. that. That makes me uncomfortable. But the real image that you get is that if there's an advocate, 
if there's someone who goes to bat for the people and stands in the gap, God is just, he's a real softy. He just steps back. He says, you're right. I'm not going to do that. Moses, he praises God. He says, God, I'm seeking your glory. I want you to be made famous. He says, God, remember your promises, these people. God, this is about you. And then he stands in the gap. And if we have needs in our lives, we can do that same thing. We can thank God for what he's done. We can seek his glory. We can call upon his promises. And God provides a way out of temptation. But what do we do about standing in the gap? What do we do about needing someone to come between us and the anger that we deserve? Like the Israelites, we're all guilty of idolatry. Every single one of us. And we don't really have any excuse like them. I don't really have any excuse for the reasons why I make idols out of simple things in my life. And we try to replace God with various things and various times in our lives, and it's deadly to us. Even if we don't feel it, even if we don't see it, remember the Israelites were celebrating. They thought life was good. They thought everything was going fine. But take heed lest they fall. And some of us here, you are a follower of Christ, and you have been living in functional idolatry. Some of you here, you're not a follower of Jesus, and we are so glad that you're here, but you are denying worship to the very God who's giving you breath at this moment. And you're unwilling to worship him. And the Bible says that there's no one who's good, so who is going to stand in the gap? Like Moses stood in the gap for his people, we need someone to stand in the gap for us. We need someone perfect who has not committed idolatry, who's had no sin, to stand before God and take God's wrath on himself. And God knows this, and so how did God respond? He sent his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sins to take the punishment that we deserved so that we could be restored to God. God saw this. He knew that someone needed to stand in the gap and he said they could never do this. So I'm going to take the hit for him. And we get to begin to see how great of a God that he is. What kind of God dies for those that are turning against him? What kind of God dies for those who are his enemies? What kind of God willingly steps down from heaven and undergoes torture and death on a cross for people that reject him? What kind of God does that? The one true God. That's the kind of God who does that. He's the only God who would die for us. He's the only God who can, and he's the only one true God. And so for those of you who are followers of Jesus, your sin has been forgiven by this God. So go and flee from idolatry. Go and flee. You don't have to live it anymore. You get to worship the one true God. And for those of you who tonight haven't followed Jesus, God's gift to you is available. All you have to do is just admit that you are an idolater, you are an idol worshiper, but you need a savior. And a loving, just, patient God will come in and he'll forgive you and he'll give you a new life where you get to exchange the worship of idols for the worship of the one true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, God, I just, I pray, God, that we would begin to see uh, just how great you are. God, as we study sin over these next several weeks, God, would we not be discouraged, but God, would we instead be focused on your character? Would we be focused on who you are, God, and how uh, powerful and loving and just and faithful you have been to us? 
And God, would you empower us as believers, God, to live the renewed life, God, to put sin to death, God, that we wouldn't worship idols in our lives, God, but we would worship you and you alone. God, as we're singing here in a moment, God, would we sing praises to you out of a genuine heart? God, and for those of us in this room who don't know you, God, I pray, God, that while it's uncomfortable, God, would you convict them of sin? Could you convict them, but also show them how loving you are, that you came and you took their place and you want to offer them a free gift? And God, I just, I pray that as we go through this, God, as we walk away from tonight's message, God, would we not think, God, that we're beyond this? God, that just because we don't worship a golden calf or idols of stone or wood, God, would you protect us from the idols of the world? God, idols like greed or lust or pride or even good things that we take and we make God things. God, we need you to do this. God, we need you to deliver us. You are our only source of hope or salvation. We pray all this through your son's name, Jesus. Amen.